Support for the Capital Connection comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities with Public Schools Unite Us initiative and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. It's the Capital Connection. Hi, I'm David Gustina back with us for another round. He keeps coming back. I'll give him that. It's the New York State Comptroller, Tom DiNapoli, a Democrat. Tom, welcome back. David, it's always great to be back, and I will continue to come back as long as you ask me. <laughs> oh, and you know I'm going to ask you, especially in a week like this. I mean, we're into the new year. New York Governor Kathy Hochul has delivered her State of the State address, a sort of wish list. Then comes the all-important budget proposal, right. which happened the following week, this week. And I know you've had a chance to at least have some eyes on it as you look forward into this session and you're looking at the governor's numbers. What comes to the top of Controller Tom DiNapoli's Well, I'd say, you know, first of all, the economy has been improving, right? You know, the predictions of a recession that we've heard for, I don't know, two years or so uh, seem to not be happening, and there seem to be fewer predictions of that. So uh, there's greater strength there. So that impacts on the revenues that come to the state. So what, you know, what we see, because obviously in our office, we particularly look not just at the short term, but the long term, a narrowing of out-year gaps that we've been projecting for, you know, for quite some time now. But those gaps are still there. So I think what the governor is doing is presenting a, a budget plan, much uh, more modest growth than we've seen in some other budgets in recent times, uh, to have a budget balance in the short term, you know, for the year that will be coming, uh, coming up, uh, but trying to really get ahead of dealing with those uh, out-year budget gaps. You know, so we're, you know, we're contending with the obvious need for investments in important areas like health care and education and so on, dealing with the cost of migrants and asylum seekers, and recognizing that with the federal uh, relief money being spent down now, uh, it falls back on New York State's resources. And the governor has also made clear she has uh, no intention to do uh, a significant increase, any increase as far as uh, the income tax, which is our biggest revenue source. So, you know, she's trying to present, I think, a more balanced but also more modest uh, budget proposal than we've seen in the past. There are increases, though. Uh, uh, some may argue not enough. Uh, others may argue too much. Uh, but that's that's what uh, is 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 going to happen now, David. As 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 you know, as an observer. Governor gives her goals in the state of the state, puts detail forward in the in the budget proposal that we now have, and now it's up to the legislature to work with the governor to go over that executive proposal, come up with a final budget agreement, 
by April 1st. So there's still a long way to go before this budget is finalized, and we know what the final numbers will be. But it is part and parcel of every year. We know that the governor, the chief executive, has to think about not only the Democrats and the legislature, but the Republicans as well and their constituency in New York and what the polls say and everything else. So she tends to come in a bit more conservative, or in the past I've seen male governors come in a bit more conservative. The legislature tends to be blamed for wanting all the money in the world to do every program they want. And then, of course, you often have the Republicans who are more conservative who then say the Democrats do too much no matter who it is. Well, I think you're right. I mean, is that a tired uh, argument? I don't know if it's a tired argument. I think I think it's the reality of the political process. I mean, I think you touched on it. Legislators want to go home and and tell folks what it is they delivered for their community. I was a legislator for 20 years. I, I, I remember the drill. You tend not to go home and say, I cut this program, I cut that program, you know, uh, that's that, that's not what people, you know, tend to want to hear. They'd rather hear, you know, how much more money is there for schools or for senior programs. And it's interesting because, you know, sometimes the political discourse from the Republican side is, you know, too much spending. But the experience always is it's too much spending everywhere else. Unless but it's going to be the right spending for, for, for our own district. But look, I think that's how our democratic process is set up. The role of the executive is really, you know, to take the the best view for the entire state. And and that means making some, you know, some tough choices. You know, some pieces of this budget I'm sure are going to be very hotly uh, you know, discussed. Education is always right the big uh the big item that ends up often being the the final deal closer. Sure. And again, there's there's you know an, an increase uh, in there, not as robust as other years, but you know we've, we've we're coming off of fully funding foundation aid, you know some really significant investments in education. But you look in the fine print, and you know we're still analyzing all the fine print. But it looks like the governor is is taking away safe, harmless, which has been yeah. You I was know, just going to ask you about that. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. I mean, well, that, and that's yeah. been there for a long time. And yeah. you know, for your listeners, that safe, harmless means that whatever the education aid is under the formula, you're not going to get less than you got the year before. But the argument is, you know, number one, in in many areas we have declining student enrollment, right? So one would think that sure. that might mean that some of the costs might go down. And you also have some districts that, based on the local wealth and reserves that they've established, you know, the sense is that perhaps they could shoulder that. They have more resources. I mean, we've always talked about this, Tom. You you pay it out of the property tax bill. That's how the schools get funded. So if you have a a wealthy community, there's more property taxes than there is in a lower-income community. But if you live in those communities, and not everybody in the so-called wealthy districts is wealthy necessarily, there has always been a, a attitude, okay, we understand we may not get as much as others, but yes. don't take away don't take away what we have. Well, so like, a I cost, think like a cost of living increase, it's almost how they see it is. Yeah. So I, I, I think I think that's gonna be a big battle. You know, the political dynamic is different now too. You know, you have veto proof democratic majorities in both houses. So so the Republicans to an extent, you know, are marginalized is too strong a word, but they certainly don't have the clout as the not too distant past where, you know, the Senate was Republican, the Assembly was Democratic, kind of tried to work things out. That was how it was during my tenure there. But there's a very different political dynamic now as well in that regard. So, you know, the big overlay, it's an election year. Everybody's up. So, you know, again, I think that this budget is going to be probably a bit more contentious a process. I think the fact that the out-year budget gaps now appear to have, you know, been reduced somewhat, that that hopefully will give a little more breathing room. But we're also at a very, look, I don't have to tell you or, or tell your listeners, we're in a very charged political environment right now. 
So I think everything gets ramped up, you know, because of that. And you have expenses that weren't anticipated, uh, the migrant and asylum seeker expense. It's much more an issue downstate and for the New York City budget. And Mayor Adams, you know, is putting his proposal uh, forward as well, as you know, this week. But the governor has indicated uh, more state resources to try to help the city deal with, you know, with the cost of the migrants. So that's an example of a cost that, you know, two years ago we weren't talking about anything in that regard. So so there's still a, a lot here that folks are going to have to analyze, and, and, and I suspect you'll see some hot debates. And, you know, for some, the question of taxes and, and perhaps, you know, as you know, some are already proposing an additional surcharge on, on wealthier New Yorkers. Right there, the governor has made clear she's concerned, you know, and rightfully so, about the out-migration population and of, and of taxpayers. So I, I don't think she's wrong to tell us, you know, we have to be mindful of that. And she also recognized in this budget that the other big expense area, in addition to education, is health care. And the Medicaid costs right now have been coming in higher than projected initially. We really have to do a better job of getting a handle on how to control those costs. I mean, David, my view on this has always been, Start by reading the fine print of our audits on Medicaid that have consistently identified hundreds of millions of dollars in opportunities to, to save money without hurting the delivery of services. That seems to, you know, have too often fallen on deaf ears. But How come, I Tom? Think, Why don't they listen to you? I saw, well, I see in your reports, you put it right yeah. up there. Here are my proposals. Here's what you should be doing, you uh, know. The challenge of being controller is that we can issue these great reports and these strong audits, but we have no enforcement authority. And, and, and you know, the agencies that we audit, the recommendations we make, they stand on their own, but they have to be embraced and they have to be implemented, but we can't force it. So, you know, I always say, especially on Medicaid, because we do a lot of auditing on Medicaid. Sure. Um, you know, start by reading our audits. You can save money, avoid certain costs, get better reimbursements. Uh, you know, there's always the element of fraud. To me, on the Medicaid program, it's less, uh, much less an issue of fraud and more inefficiency uh, and issues like double billing and, you know, inappropriate reimbursements. I mean, go down the long list, as we've talked about on your show many times. You know, start there. But, you know, she's going to have you know, more eyes looking at ways to make that program uh, more efficient. And, and, you know, she touched on, uh, you know, a big issue as far as uh, uh, Medicaid is uh, long-term care for people, you know, nursing homes and so on. This is also a national failure. We don't have a long-term care policy as a country, and we certainly don't an issue that's never been dealt with. So many folks using, you know, legal means and proper state planning and using their lawyers and legal system end up spending down, you know, their assets to a point where they can go on Medicaid for, you know, the last chapter of their lives when they might need, you know, some intensive long-term care. But that is a huge cost impact that has to be borne by the Medicaid program. So a lot there, a lot there. And one budget is not going to solve some of those bigger issues, but I think the governor is right to say we need to get a better handle on managing those Medicaid costs. Nor is one conversation with the state controller, Tom DiNapoli, who joins us this week on the Capital Connection. I'm David Gustina. Tom, you, you rattled off about six issues we could get to. There's so much to talk about. I want to back up a little bit because yeah. in the State of the State speech, the next day in the New York Times, they noted, well, she didn't mention the word migrant. The Republicans jumped on that, but then immediately in her proposal, her budget proposal, comes the money for migrants. The Republicans still weren't happy about that. They blame New York for being a sanctuary city. They're sort of bailing the Democrats for all of it. But in the case of the migrants, you have the entrance of the Rainy Day Fund here. And you and I have talked about that Rainy Day Fund, and it had yep. been boosted up. The governors yep. claim credit for that. 
but the rainy day fund becomes an important piece here in a difficult financial time. Yeah, you know, I've given the governor and legislature credit for finally building up the reserves. So, so the, these are monies. Some of them are in what we call the statutory reserves, which are more restricted in terms of how it can be used and when. And then in the informal reserves, where where there's a lot of discretion, our view in the controller's office always is more of it should be in the restricted reserves. But all that being said, you know, $19.5 billion in reserves, the highest we've had in many, many years, meant for uh, an economic emergency. And what the governor uh, said in, in, in this budget dealing with this uh, cost of the asylum seekers and the migrants, trying to you know, help New York City and some of the other localities, uh, but it's primarily New York City bearing the brunt of this, that she would take a portion, I believe it was 500 million, from the rainy day reserve and use that to help pay for a part of what the state uh, is putting forward. You know, so you know, the initial reaction is, 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 is that an, enough of an emergency to qualify for uh, you know, for using some of that rainy day reserve. And I, I think it really gets to a point that we've made uh, in, in the past while we've complimented the governor and legislature for building up the reserves. Uh, what we have been uh, saying are two things. Number one, as I said before, more of it should be in, in the statutorily protected uh, reserves rather than the inform what we would call the informal reserves. And number two, we don't have clear guidelines with those informal reserves as to when you would spend the money, what is it appropriate to spend the money on. You know, saying an economic emergency is kind of a broad, you know, uh, label. So from my perspective, initial reaction, okay, if they want to define this as a, in a sense, a uh, short-term emergency, you know, uh, uh, which would you know, qualify for, for using some of the rainy day reserves. My question would be, um, what's the payback schedule? Meaning, okay, if you're going to dip into the reserve, not a huge amount when you consider the total amount of the reserve, what is the commitment to return that money, to build that reserve back up? So if, if it's an emergency and you're looking for, you know, some float for a while, uh, fine. But I think there should be some very clear commitment that that money is going to be paid back on a very clear timetable. So, you know, I'm hoping this is not, you know, the first crack in moving us backward in terms of not having the, you know, the kind of reserves that we should have. Because much as the migrant asylum seeker cost wasn't anticipated, it's not like the Great Recession of whatever, 12 years ago. It is not like COVID coming out of nowhere and the economy closing down. And I, I, from my perspective, the reserves were more built up for those kind of, 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 of truly economic catastrophes. You could certainly say the, emer the, the migrant asylum seeker is, is, is an urgent situation. I wouldn't put it at the level of what we had to go through with COVID, though. So I think that's where being a bit more clear as to how we define the emergencies that would qualify for using some of that money, and if you're going to dip into that, what's the schedule and timetable mm -hmm. to put that money back and to make the reserves whole again. So that, that's obviously some of our preliminary reaction to that. Do you say that because the federal government has such a much larger role in all of this? In that well, they... I mean, that's, that's the bigger question. I mean, look, and the governor said this, the Mayor Adams said this, I think everybody's been saying it. This really has been a failure at the national level. You know, you have, you have different opinions about how to handle border security. Clearly, there are problems there. 
we have as a nation not dealt with immigration reform and pathway to citizenship for years. That's not new. It gets caught up in all the, you know, Washington back and forth. And that's been a tragedy uh, that, that hasn't been resolved. And, and given all the dislocations happening around the world and you know, a lot of folks wanting to come to this country uh, and, and having this expense in the federal government not stepping up and, and helping the states and localities deal with this cost. So, so there's no question that you know, Washington needs to do more. I, I don't see that happening anytime soon, the way things are going down there. So we, we are having to contend with it. Look, we, you know, we talk about the numbers, we talk about the dollars. Let's keep in mind, you know, they're also, these are real people, yeah. um, families, children, uh, often you know, uh, coming out of very troubling situations in their, you know, in their native country. And then, you know, and I hate to put it this way, but you know, ending up on a bus and kind of being dumped in the middle of New York City. Uh, this, this is uh, Some have said it's like a real challenge. <laughs> well, it's, it's, just... it's sad, you know, and I, I, you feel for the kids. You know, they end up Absolutely. in a shelter. They end up in a school. Then they, they, they have to leave the shelter. They go to another school. I mean, you know, you compound the heartbreak of what this all is, uh, you know, and I, I just think when, when we're debating the cost and the expenses appropriately, we, you know, we should. And obviously, we're always looking at cost and expense in our office, but let's not totally forget the, the human dimension of this. So it is a failure at the federal level, and, but I just don't see any immediate relief. So we've got to contend with those, with those short-term costs and managing you know, managing this influx, and and obviously that's that's been a uh, less than perfect situation so far. Yeah, and as you mentioned, probably not much going to happen in a an election year. Never mind a presidential. Well, election I mean, year. given given how, given how you know polarized everything is, sure. and how you know, I mean, it's it's um, we we are at a juncture in our in our nation's history where you know the the issues are becoming more complex. The amount of money available to to address some of these issues is not as uh, not as much there as we'd like, and and the ability to have civil conversation and find common ground, I mean, that just doesn't happen like it used to. I mean, it was never perfect before, but it's only gotten worse. And and I think given how, you know, how charged this election season is already, um, it, it's only going to get worse before it gets better. And I and I, I hate to say that because, you know me, David, I'm usually the optimist. In you are. Time. I don't know what's happening here, Tom. I no, hope it's, you okay? Uh, you need a little... I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm reading the papers and watching the news too much, but... Uh, <laughs> like you know, all we'll of get, us. Look, and the reality is we'll get through it. You know, when the historians write the books, so they'll come up with uh, how we got out of it. It's interesting because, you remember, I'm a history major, so... Of course. I, I, I do like, when I have the time, you know, my, my, my pleasure is reading reading books, especially ones that have been sitting on my, on my bookshelves <laughs> that I haven't had a chance to read. But I just finished uh, a book titled 1968, The Year the, oh, the, yeah. the Dream Died. And, and it, it's a reminder of, I mean, that's really when I was, you know, coming of age. I was a teenager, you know, then, uh, and watching, you know, you had, you know, the war in Vietnam. You had the, the King Kennedy assassination, the Chicago Democratic Convention. You had the reemergence of, you know, Richard Nixon. You had... Civil had, rights you know, in general. Oh, civil rights, all the mo- the, uh, the uh, uh, environmental movement, you know, the women's movement, all the movements were coming sure. to, to be. It was an incredibly polarizing and, and, and divided time, and violent time uh, also. Uh, we got through it, you know. I mean, I, it's not quite a parallel to what we're going through now, but it, 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 is, a, it is, a, is a similar moment where you stop every now and then you say, how the heck are we going to get through this? Well... We've gotten through it before. We'll, we'll get through it this time. I, I just don't. I just don't see the light at the end of the tunnel right now. 
Well, the tunnel or the structure that people need to be in is probably going to involve four walls, a roof, a door, <laughs> and we don't have enough of it. We're talking about housing, housing. Yeah. cost yeah. of living. Now, again, we, we sort of look at New York City as the prime example here. You've looked at this. The housing costs there, you say, have grown more than 68% over the last decade, the yeah. largest increase of selected major metropolitan areas in the United States. We yeah. know it's expensive to live in general, but so many people can't afford a place to live. Yeah. And actually, you know, when we talk about the out-migration of of population and taxpayers, it's certainly true we're losing some people at the upper income end that, that, you know, that pay a significant amount of of, of, uh, their income taxes. But you know what? We're actually losing a big proportion of people at the other end, you know, at the, 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 the middle and lower middle income level. Why? Because of the affordability issue. And a lot of that has to do with housing. You know, the governor had a strategy on housing last year that, that, that didn't go too far because there was a sense that it was um, a bit more using a stick than and not enough carrots. So what she tried to put together in her housing proposal uh, for this year is a bit more emphasis on the carrot, you know, to have some more money and resources to promote housing growth, but to target those state resources to communities that, in fact, are willing to take a more bold position on increasing uh, housing, especially affordable housing, uh, in their in their neighborhoods. We'll see how that plays out. Um, you know, there's still discussion in New York City about the 421A program, you know, which had expired. There's a lot of talk in, in uh, particularly again in New York City about incentivizing conversion of some of these uh, underutilized office buildings, turn them into residential. Um, and there's still a lot of concern about, you know, because of those high costs, tenant protection. And, you know, that was one of the big issues uh, last year that held up some of the negotiations, this, the proposal for what's called good cause eviction. So my sense is that I'm, I'm sure there will be more money put in there for housing. I think the governor's strategy is a smarter one, more viable to, you know, propose carrots rather than sticks. But, um uh, you know, I still think you're going to see some some big debate about to what extent you provide incentives for developers, uh, and on the on the flip side of it, what more protections can you have, you know, particularly for tenants. So I, you know, I, I, th- I think housing is going to be one of the hotter topics, and, and it's not just a straight line, you know, budget issue. It's as much a policy issue as well. Yeah, we're speaking with Tom DiNapoli, the New York State Comptroller. Tom, hospital loan. I saw this story in the Times Union today, and it looks like it's just basically come out. I wonder if you're aware of it. New York officials say they have yet to be repaid a $1.5 billion loan that was given to cash-strapped hospitals last year, even as hospital leaders have been flooding the state capital in recent months to warn of looming financial insolvency. The governor did mention that, uh, that 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 has not been repaid. But, you know, look, the, the, the health care financing is one of the more complex areas in, in, in New York State and New York State budget. And you do have many financially distressed hospitals all across the state. So, you know, particularly the ones that are largely reliant on, on, on Medicaid patients, uh, you know, every, it's, it's, as much as it's an expensive program, the reimbursement level uh, often is very, very low. So this gets back to that whole, that whole big discussion of how do we more appropriately uh, finance health care, First of all, to have access and quality for for patients, but also recognizing that the providers 
you know, be it the, the men and women who work in the field or the institutions like the hospitals and the nursing homes, how do we make sure that they stay financially viable and stay above water? Uh, it's, it's a very tough question. Uh, we've tried to do a better job of balancing all those needs uh, in the past. I think we're going to have to really um, open up a clean page again and say, all right, let, let's look at all this again and figure out how we're going to get through it. Uh, you're talking about billions of dollars and a lot of very important stakeholders that have uh, a lot to say about how we do this in a smarter way. So I, I, I think the fact that you know education, health care, particularly the Medicaid program, those are the two big expense areas. If we, in fact, are going to deal with these out-year budget caps, those are the areas we're going to have to be focused on. Finally, from the Department of Who Knew, gift cards. I had no idea that the repository for gift card money that hasn't been claimed goes to the state controller. I mean, you got, what, $27 million, more than $27 million from gift cards was turned over in 2023. I bet you some of that's my money, Tom. <laughs> well, you know, when we talk about unclaimed funds, uh, people always say, well, you, know, you keep publicizing how to get this money returned, and yet... It seems that the pot of unclaimed funds keeps going up right. now over, over $18 billion. Well, part of it is that there are new kinds of monies that we can now say become unclaimed funds. Gift cards happens to be one of them. And we've seen an increasing use of it. It's a convenient way for people to, uh, you know, to, to want Not to have to come up with an actual gift. Yeah. But, you know, there, after a certain period of time under the law, if the gift card has not been used, it's turned over to the state, it's unclaimed funds. So we tell people... And, you know, we're not talking about, like, you go to the local, you know, restaurant and you do a cash gift card. What we're really talking about is a gift card from a major retailer where, you know, you should register, right. you know, the gift card. So there's, a, you know, a number in your name and account because if, in fact, you don't use it, you lose it, it expires, whatever, it's turned over to us. We need that information to track back to show that you're the rightful owner. But that's why we tell people, read the fine print on gift cards, use them. <laughs> We're just through the holiday season, David. If you got gift cards, use them. Don't let them sit around, you know, for, you know, for a year or two or three or four. Use them as soon as you can because this is another area, just like a, an old bank account that you, that may have been dormant. This can be turned over to the state, and we end up holding on to it instead of you using it as intended. Okay, I gotta go check all the gift cards now. <laughs> wow, Tom, Tom DiNapoli, the state controller of New York, and he visits us on the Capital Connection. And I can't tell you how important it is to have a conversation with the state's chief financial officer so you understand how the system is churning. Tom, thanks so much for being with us. David, we'll talk again as this year unfolds, and I look forward to a happy, healthy New Year to you and all your listeners. And to you as well. Support for the Capital Connection comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities through the Public Schools Unite Us initiative. The Capital Connection is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. You can listen to The Capital Connection anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcast. And join us again next week at this same time for another political conversation. For The Capital Connection, I'm David Gustina.